On one hand, Jesus' teaching from Luke 21 this morning seems pretty apocalyptic. Wars and insurrections, earthquakes and famines, good people being slandered and hated and even executed. But on the other hand, it kind of just seems like the evening news. Nations are rising against nations. Civil unrest is common, a common theme across the globe. Governments are being toppled. There are corrupt uh, elections. And even in our own country, we are in the midst of an impeachment process. We also know that global warming has led to famines and tsunamis and hurricanes and all kinds of natural disasters. So maybe Jesus' teaching this morning doesn't really sound all that outlandish. To be alive today is difficult. Just as it's difficult, it has been difficult to live at any point in history. From the days of Jesus till now, till he comes again. As Sam tells Frodo in uh, the fellowship version, it's dangerous business walking out your front door. But after predicting all these bad things that are going to happen, uh, that Jesus teaches that it's hard to call that the good news, but we say that it's the good news anyways, after uh, all these things that Jesus predicts, he tells his disciples, by your endurance, you will gain your souls. But the question, it seems to me, is how do we endure? How, in the light of all these social injustices and the wars and the school shootings and the natural disasters, how do we endure? I grew up with an understanding of Christianity that was strictly spiritual. Strictly spiritual. Jesus came to save your soul from hell. Of course, we should be nice people, but that's primarily so that you would come up to us and say, why are you so nice? And then we would say that we were kind and gentle and loving because God was angry and mean and vindictive and was going to send you to hell. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I'm guessing. Um, but if they signed off on a set of beliefs and said a special prayer, then God would all of a sudden be transformed. And God would also now be kind and gentle and loving because you were on the right side. Um, that is maybe a little bit harsh of a summary of my upbringing, but it's not, it's not wrong. There was a real belief, uh, there was a real belief that accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior would bear fruit, and that God would transform your life, but all of that was secondary. And the faith that I grew up with had nothing to say to systemic injustices or to poverty or to all the isms that we know about, racism, sexism, homophobia is not an ism, but you know, all those isms, classism. So, for example, I was not taught as a young Christian to critique capitalism or to second-guess the American dream in the church that I grew up in. I don't think I even fully knew what social justice meant until I went to seminary. But, let me tell you, I learned very fast in seminary what social justice meant. My seminary, or at least the students that I hung out with and the teachers that I chose to take classes from, were all 
social justice. They were all about being committed to faith and action, to the kingdom of God coming to earth as it is in heaven. They were committed to fighting the unjust powers and principalities that keep the oppressed oppressed, which was all very good. It is essential to the gospel, I would still say. I still believe these things very much. But I have to admit, it was a little bit of a pendulum swing. I think my professors had a more holistic understanding of faith, but for us students who grew up in the world of personal salvation and saving souls, our three years in seminary were very reactionary. Anything that spoke to one's personal salvation, personal spirituality, anything that implied that God might actually care about you and your specific struggles, was dismissed as too individualistic and it's totally missing the point of the gospel, which was all about liberation. Our favorite passage during those days was from Luke 4, when Jesus, quoting Isaiah, proclaims, The Spirit of God is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, just a few verses later, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We thought Jesus didn't come to save your soul. He came to release the captives and set the oppressed free. And so, I arrived here at Grant Park Church a little over three years ago, ready to do what Jesus did. To dismantle racism, to crush homophobia, to trample the patriarchy. Yet. <laughs> it didn't go quite the way I expected, though. It turns out setting the oppressed free and releasing the captives is very hard work, and it's not very straightforward how you go about doing that. It turns out there are systems in place and ideo ideologies established that a brand new pastor of a small church in Portland, Oregon, is virtually powerless to change. And straddled with my own student debt, I wasn't exactly sure how to preach the good news to the poor. I couldn't <laughs> use a little good news myself in October all around, and the grace period was over. And all these things that I couldn't do, that I just mentioned, actually seemed wildly more realistic than the final proclaiming recovery of sight to the blind. I guess I missed that class in seminary where we learned how to cure blindness. But more than all of that, my attempts to do all these things that I thought I was supposed to do were wearing me out, because I had nothing to pull from. I didn't know how to pray or have any kind of personal connection with God, because I was afraid that that would be too individualistic and would miss the mark of the gospel, as if seeking God's help in my own life was selfish. I mean, how could I, a cis, straight, white, educated, middle-class man asked God for anything. Didn't I already have everything handed to me? But there was no denying it. My well was definitely running dry. I wasn't, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 12 from our reading today, I was not drawing water from the wells of salvation. And after a few months, I ran out of things to say because I was just repeating all the things I had learned in seminary, and at some point I ran out of all that stuff. 
And suddenly I had to start speaking from my own experience, from my own thoughts, from my own spirituality. But the problem was, I didn't have much spirituality to speak of. And so I came to realize, out of sheer necessity, that there was something to this personal spiritual experience. But I hadn't learned enough in seminary, and I really believed and still believe, that religion that's removed from the lived realities of the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden, and the marginalized is not the theology of Jesus. It's just that I also came to realize that theology removed from personal spiritual experience is equally problematic. In the words of Richard Rohr, theological training without spiritual experience is deadly. So this is what my sermon today hinges on. The way that we think religion is one or the other, either personal spirituality or social action or works or whatever you want to call it. But we rarely come to understand them both as one. Or maybe not both, but it is both. Our call as Christians is both. Just yesterday, Bri and I went to um, a mini retreat at Trinity Episcopal Church, Cathedral. Uh, um, about contemplation and action. And uh, their priest of spiritual formation, I think it was, or I don't know his title, but he voiced this tension himself. He said, I often don't know how to kind of be both spiritually deep and also be invested in social action and the good of the world in the way that we often kind of feel like we have to choose one or the other. We all know Jesus' teaching that the most important commandment is to love God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it, Jesus says, to love your neighbor as yourself. We all know this. But the truth is, we're very tempted in reality to only focus on one. The social justice warriors think that if they love people, it's the same as loving God. And the pious and devout think that if they go through their spiritual regimen of church attendance and Bible reading and prayer, they don't need to worry about the social realities of others because God is concerned with their soul and not their body. But these two commandments, love God and love your neighbor, are not the same. And I've heard a lot of people I really respect say that they're the same. They are not the same. They are inextricably linked. You can't do one genuinely without the other they aren't the same. You can't breathe without inhaling and exhaling. Inhaling and exhaling. Both are necessary for life, and yet they're surely not the same. You can't uh, go on exhaling indefinitely. Eventually, you have to inhale in order to breathe. And so also do we need to both love God and love our neighbors. I grew up thinking that signing off on a set of beliefs was all you needed to do, and I thought that that was the same thing as loving God. And I left seminary thinking that it was all about rallying against injustices, and I thought that that was the same as loving my neighbor. But neither of those things was really love, and neither of them on their own were enough. And so as I felt my well running dry about six months or so into being your pastor, I didn't really say the I started to think that maybe I should make my spiritual wellness a priority. And I had this sneaking suspicion that maybe being spiritually healthy would actually contribute to my ability to minister in tangible ways. 
Like, maybe our outward actions flow from inside and who we are. Isn't that an odd thought? Like, maybe that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels who do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a plain symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. See, I haven't been doing good social justice work out of love. I was doing it out of guilt. I was wanting to do it so that I could appear to be that woke pastor who showed everyone what God was really like. But the problem was, I didn't really care myself that much. Or at least I didn't care as much about other people as I cared about myself, about my own reputation and my own success. So, I had this revelation that spiritual and social, soul and body, inner and outer, Surely this was a new and novel idea. But then I came across Richard Rohr's organization called the Center for Action and Contemplation. Action and Contemplation. Okay, so one person beat me to the punch. One person was starting to figure it out, I thought. No, it turns out there's like a lot in the Bible about that. And also, there's a lot of Christian history that would tell us that that is true. Take, for example, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, which is an anonymous, uh, was written by an anonymous 14th century monk, so a few hundred years ago. Speaking of contemplative prayer, he says, Let me tell you what this discipline will do for you. It will change your heart. It will make you so kind and dynamic and loving that when you stop doing it and mingle with the world again, Coming down from contemplation to converse with or pray for your neighbor, you'll discover that you love your slanderer as much as your friend, and that you love any stranger as much as a relative. In fact, sometimes you'll be more partial to your enemy than to your friend. Starts with love of God, leads to love of neighbor. Starts with the inner and moves the outer. This week I read an interview with Helen Regine, so you say her last name, and she's a nun who's been spent decades dedicated to abolishing the death penalty. And um, I want to read you one kind of question and answer from this interview with Helen Regine. The interviewer asks, in your book, you write about a time when you were on, on the side of the spiritual sisters against the social justice sisters. How do you see that divide now? And she responds, true spirituality in Christianity, using Jesus as the prism, always flowers in compassion and justice. There is no separation between spirituality and social justice. Jesus made that clear. I was hungry and he gave me something to eat. All religious traditions emphasize the capacity for compassion, to love your neighbor even at the cost of your own life. No one is excluded from that expansive love. We hope that this is what happens to us in the spiritual life, that we love deeper, we love wider. For me, being a spiritual sister was about passivity, 
I said to myself, I'm spiritual. I rise above all that messy politics. Then I realized that my lack of engagement was an acceptance of the status quo. And that, too, was a political position. You can't be apolitical. Then I was moved to action and discovered that it was freeing. You feel that life energy flowing through you. We are meant to act. The path is made by walking. There's a lot that's good in that, but I just want to draw our attention back to two of the first lines. True spirituality in Christianity, using Jesus as a prism, always flowers in compassion and justice. There is no separation between spirituality and social justice. We live in a world where Jesus' words from Luke 21 hit close to home. Where there are wars and rumors of wars, insurrections and natural disasters, unjust policies being passed in our government, and school shootings in our schools. Seeing, we see a world that is apparently hell-bent on destroying itself, or at least humans hell-bent on destroying themselves and as much of the world as they can while they're at it. And it is easy to despair. How do we resist? How do we maintain the fight? I still haven't really answered my question from the beginning. How do we endure? Make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. And then Jesus says, by your endurance you will gain your souls. And Isaiah says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. For those of us who are Christians, our strength comes not from ourselves, and not from our circumstances, thank God, but from the living God revealed in Jesus Christ. God is the well from which we draw. Those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. So we drink the water, and it becomes a spring that then goes out. Inner leads out. True spirituality in Christianity, using Jesus as a prism, always flowers with compassion and justice, telling through Jesus. How do we endure? We stop seeing spiritual and physical, personal and social, souls and bodies as opposites, but see them as complementary. We inhale and exhale. We inhale 